Thank you. Thank you. would like to thank you everybody who is here and of course Richard and uh, the Moheddin Ibn Arabi Society for hosting me, Soas and Stephen for a nice introduction. So um, today in my uh, brief presentation to you I will try to delineate um, as much as possible Ibn Arabi's stance on uh, issues like Qada and Qadar, so the understanding of uh, uh, divine decree, predestination and uh, destiny. Um, in the study that has been mentioned, I have tried, um, I've attempted to demonstrate, I don't know to what extent, successfully or, or not, um, that uh, pivotal um, intellectuals like uh, uh, Ibn Sina, so known in the Western world as Avicenna and Al-Ghazali and Ibn Arabi, um, attempted to uh, provide a form of a harmonization or a theoretical compromises in their, uh, in their systems of thought. Um, and my conclusions were that uh, whether on the one hand Avicenna and Ghazali were probably um, dictated to reach these compromising stances uh, uh, in order probably to please the authorities, in particular Al-Ghazali uh, found himself, um, especially in the first part of his career, willing to um, please the triumphant Asharism of the 11th and the 12th century. In the case of Ibn Arabi, um, in, in Ibn Arabi's thought, this conciliation, let's say, between uh, philosophical, theological, when I'm speaking about theological, I'm speaking about the Kalamic stances, so Kalam, speculative theologians, the, the Mutakalimun stances, um, and the mystical parameters, seemed to have served the scope of simply better convey his experience, his understanding, his, his uh, uh, experiential taste of the reality rather than uh, pleasing the authorities. And uh, in a way, the, um, the, 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 um, the nature of, the, uh, of Ibn Arabi's writings are a testimony, uh, is a testimony to this, uh, to this tendency. We all know that his works have been defined as serpentine works, characterized by perplexities and so on. Um, and probably because they were meant to be understood, to be perceived by uh, minds already trained in uh, the Sufi's uh, um, concept, with Sufi's concept. Uh, but I believe that uh, um, these bewildering paradoxes and these juxtapositions, let's say, of uh, uh, on the one hand more orthodox and unorthodox dictates and unorthodox positions uh, were meant to abolish the uh, conventional parameters of languages, uh, the conventional parameters of expressions, had they been mystical, had they been philosophical, had they been characterized by uh, calamic positions. So uh, Ibn Arabic is really a non-conceptual language. Uh, and his use of philosophical idioms, of uh, calamic idioms, of course, mystical, mystical language, mystical terminology, uh, was just used as a lingua franca, so a kind of vernacular parlance, a way of uh, introducing and expressing and conveying in the most possible, in the best possible way, his very um, subjective, his very um, evanescent, in a way, experience of the reality. Um, now, uh, it has been stated by many scholars, it has been uh, to a certain extent demonstrated that Ibn Arabi's thought was very much influenced by, uh, by the Neoplatonic thought. Um, and there has been also a um, tendency to um, trying to categorize in a certain way, trying to, pl to, to place Ibn Arabi's position within a very coherent speculative uh, form of thought. Um, 
some, some people, some scholars, some intellectuals have defined this, uh, these findings as uh, um, being characteristic of a mystical philosophy or a philosophical mysticism. Uh, but uh, I believe that uh, in the end, this kind of categorizing tendency, this kind of attitude of willing to impose a form of structure to the Ibn Arabi's thought, it's really meant to fail. Um, um, his, his understanding, his subjective view of the reality, his way of believing the real, of believing uh, God, uh, is really dictated by um, divine insights. So um, I, I think what characterizes Ibn Arabi's thought is uh, a spirit of uh, intellectual tolerance. Um, and this is very visible, it's very clear when Ibn Arabi addresses his disciples. Um, in the Fotuhat al-Makiyah, but also in other risalas, and in some of his risalas. And basically, he's uh, um, warning his disciples from any form of uh, uh, clear-cut condemnation of uh, the systems of thought of the Mutakallimun or even the Falasifa. Um, and this is especially visible when uh, we are dealing with the topics of ethics and metaphysics. Um, after all, Ibn Arabi was very much um, touched uh, very much, um, um, I would say, interested in how the philosophers had been able, to, so the Islamic philosopher, the philosopher, had been able to uh, combine and harmonize the, uh, uh, the system of thought derived from the Greek thought, so this uh, foreign uh, philosophy within the Islamic paradigm. And um, uh, Ibn Arabi, to a certain extent, defends the philosophers and their understanding of the hikmah uh, which he considers uh, to be a synonymous of uh, um, the knowledge of prophethood. But uh, as also my colleague has uh, uh, um, talked to you about in a uh, um, previous discussion, of course, for Ibn Arabi, um, although uh, the philosophers were able to reach a certain degree of validity, their speculations was to up to a certain degree valid, of course, uh, their methodology was not convincing and uh, um, these rationalizing speculations really needed to be supported by uh, divine insights. Um, so today I will try to um, really guide you to some of uh, um, Ibn Arabi's uh, most um, peculiar um, concepts. And I will try to show you how they relate uh, to uh, the theory of Hadith al-Wujud on one end, but also I will try to um, speculate in a way um, how um, Ibn Sina's, so Avicenna's uh, uh, understanding of the reality, understanding of the um, Neoplatonic cosmological system, some of his ideas in a way tiptoed within Ibn Arabi's thought. Um, Ibn Arabi was very much uh, interested and uh, intrigued by the uh, by Neoplatonism, and I don't know how much you're familiar with uh, the Neoplatonic stances. So Neoplatonism speaks of uh, uh, the reality as a result of the superabundance of God, of uh, uh, a form of a fusion of the absolute perfection of God that uh, in a way necessitates the creation of the world without the will of God, the irada of God being uh, um, pivotal in, this, in his decision. So the, the will of God does not really necessitate the creation. It's just um, um, 
and happening, something that happens naturally because of God's absolute superabundance, absolute perfection. And uh, Ibn Arabis is fascinated by these ideas and by the day, he looks basically at the cosmos as a, an unraveling of divine perfection. And as we know, uh, he believes that the world is a, basically a manifestation of the divine presence. And within the divine presence, I believe you all are familiar with the, um, the, the divine attributes, the sifat of God. Um, Ibn Sina, uh, sorry, uh, uh, Ibn Arabi defines the sifat as relative realities, loci theophanici, which means locus of manifestations, of divine self-manifestation. And within the divine presence, within the divine reality, we also have the so-called divine names, so the asma. The definition of the asma is somehow complicated, but is very much related to the understanding of Ibn Arabi's uh, um, uh, perspective on Qada and Qadr, so the, the idea of divine predestination or divine determinism. Now, I, I would tend to differentiate between these two terms. So on the one end, I would speak of predestination as uh, um, almost um, a theological way of looking at God's omnipotence and the capacity that God has of intervening in each moment in time, um, directing the destiny, directing the, uh, the future of anything that exists. So a form of pre-eternal degree that dictates what a certain thing will be and how the future of this certain thing will develop. And this way of looking at the divine decree was very much rooted in uh, the Asharite understanding of, uh, of God, of God as being absolute omnipotent and uh, able to create both evil acts and good actions. Uh, on the other hand, um, uh, peripatetic philosophers like uh, Ibn Sina, well, Ibn Sina considered himself to be a peripatetic philosopher, so a follower of Aristotle, um, they believed instead in a form of natural determinism. What does it mean? They believed that the nature of each thing, of, a, of each existent, plays a role in the determining of that specific thing's destiny. Um, so when Ibn Arabi speaks of the divine names, it's, it, he considers them as expressions that detail the undifferentiated divine essence. In themselves are conceptual relations to the essence, which means that they are neither the essence nor different from the being who is designated by them. They are defined as attributions or ascriptions envisaged between God and the cosmos. Now, in this is a very important point, and here we'll be stressing the similarities with uh, Ibn Sina's uh, thought. Ibn Arabi stresses that in their essential latency, the name's ontological status is in the realm of the possible, the mumkin, between existence and non-existence. Now, the understanding of everything that is around us, that everything that uh, is, um, as belonging to different categories, in particular to the category of the impossible, of the possible, and of the necessary, uh, is something that characterizes Ibn Sina's, Avicenna's thought. Here I'm just providing a, a excursus on what are the definitions provided by Ibn Sina on these three categories. So the impossible is something whose impossibility is absolutely necessary in a way. So if we think of something that is impossible, even in our mind, um, 
it is impossible for this, for this thing to acquire existence, wujud. The possible of existence, and this is something Ibn Arabis, uh, on which Ibn Arabis thought is very much akin, is very much similar, is that which could be supposed to be either non-existent or existent without the occurrence of any contradiction. When, I will go back to the previous slide. When Ibn Arabi speaks of the divine names, he considers them as belonging to the Avicennan category of the munkin, of the possible being. Everything is but a possibility. Whether this thing is put into existence or is not put into existence, so whether God invests with these things, with wujud, with the attribute, let's say, of wujud, of existence. One of the characteristics of Ibn, uh, Ibn Sina's uh, um, thought was uh, the understanding of God, not in Neoplatonic terms. Neoplatonism speaks of God as the one. Ibn Sina speaks of God as the wajib al-wujud, the necessary of existent, which, mean that, which means that uh, for Ibn Sina, um, God is the only being in which essence, his essence is that, his mahia and existence are one and the same thing. The two things cannot be detached from each other. God is the only being that necessarily exists by himself. It doesn't need an external cause to create him. It doesn't need an internal cause to create him. Essence and existence are one and the same thing. And it is God, this, this necessary of existence, that according to Ibn Sina is responsible for the creation of things, is responsible for investing possible beings of creation, of wujud. Now these ideas, although with some subtle differences, are very much um, present in uh, uh, Ibn Arabi's thought. And uh, this is an extract from uh, the Fusus um, al-Hikam, where Ibn Arabi says, it is established that the originated is dependent on which that brings it about for its possibility. Its existence is derived from something harder than itself, the connection in this case being one of dependence. It is therefore necessary that that which is the support of originated existence should be essentially and necessarily by itself, self-sufficient and independent of any other. But this is very much even seen as understanding of God. And it's a very much philosophical, and I wouldn't say linear, but logical way of looking at what could be a cause um, in terms of existentiation. Now, when I'm talking about cause and causality, uh, we know that Aristotle used to look at uh, God as the, the, prime, the primary cause of, uh, you know, that of everything that exists. Um, in the Ibn Arabi's thought, this doesn't happen. Ibn Arabi finds extremely problematic to refer to God as a cause. Even his actions cannot be considered as a, a causative of, of anything in particular, and I will explain to you why, in what terms. Another quotation by Ibn Arabi, know that the cosmos is everything other than God, and it is nothing but the possible things. Either they exist or they do not exist. The status of mumkin is inherent in them, either they exist or not. Now, 
if we examine, if we consider this stance on the realities, on the, on, on the fact that everything that exists, everything that is other than God, of course, even Arab is very clear in differentiating God is God and the things are the things. This is a quotation present in this quote, al Makia. So God is independent, is the independent of the world. There's nothing that we can compare to him. Um, but it, if we look at everything that is other than God as belonging to the realm of the munkinat, of the possible things, then it is quite clear, it is quite um, logical in a way to understand why Ibn Arabi considers all these possible things as being ayan tabita. Are you familiar with this terminology? Ayan tabita is uh, um, basically um, a kind of archetype, a kind of uh, um, unchangeable reality. All the possible beings are invested with the, uh, um, with the concept of immutability, thubut. It speaks of the immutable entities as eternal archetypes of everything manifested in the cosmos. They designate ideas expressing God's foreknowledge of how his essence will be disclosed in particular instances. They are defined as moments of eternity, determinations that are unite, perpetually existing ab intra in God's essential unity. Now, the mutable entities play an extraordinary role in the definition, in the understanding of Ibn Arabi's uh, uh, way of uh, looking at uh, the concept of Qadr and Qadr. Um, and I will explain to you in the course of, uh, of, this, uh, of this presentation why. Um, but before that, I would like to um, speak of uh, create a sort of parallelism between Avicenna's understanding of God's knowledge being a creative knowledge and in a way Ibn Arabis understands creation as a, a result of God's self-manifestation or God's self-knowledge, the famous Hadith Qudsi, um, I was an hidden treasure and I long to be known, so I created the world that I, so that I might be known. Um, According to Ibn Arabi, all things which are subsistent in a latent, in a latent status <coughs> in God's essence become creation only at the very moment God becomes conscious of them through his self-determination. And Nicholson, one of the greatest scholars in, uh, uh, on, uh, on Ibn Arabi's, on Ibn Arabi's thought, um, defined the creation of things as, as meaning that God is knowing such things. Um, So what does this mean? In Ibn Sina's thought, um, in particular in his elaboration of the Farabian Neoplatonic Emanative Schema, I'll have it here for you, the understanding and the knowledge that each one of the intellects in the Emanatory Schema, we have up to 10 intellects, up, uh, uh, reaching the, the final intellect, the tenth intellect, which is considered the demiurge of the, of the sublunar realm, of the sublunar world. Each one of these intelligence, by thinking, by becoming aware of its own role in the cosmological schema, and by becoming aware of what has generated heat, and uh, uh, becoming aware of its own reality, 
in a certain way triggers the creation of secondary causes. And I will be um, just pointing this out very briefly. If we look at the second intelligence, this is, uh, uh, this is just a very schematic presentation of uh, uh, Avicenna's uh, way of looking at the emanatory schema. So according to Ibn Sina, very schematically speaking, the second intelligence has a threefold kind of contemplation. So he has three objects of contemplation. He becomes aware of three things. He becomes aware of what is the cause of its, of its necessitation, the cause of its creation, which is the first intelligence. So by thinking about the first intelligence, he generates, he effuses, he triggers the emanation of the third intellect. But the second intelligence is also thinking about something else. It's thinking about itself as a possible being, something that was only possible of existence and has been put, has been granted, wujud. And this way of thinking becomes generative of the sphere of the first heaven. But on the other hand, the second intelligence also thinks of itself as a necessary product. And this form of contemplation, this form of awareness, produces the soul of the first heaven. Now, this form of thinking, this threefold wave of contemplation, is repeated up to the very last intelligence in the emanatory schema. So what does it mean? In Ibn, to reassume, to make it like, to, to, to draw some conclusions, even Sina's way of looking at creation, um, knowledge becomes the triggers of creation. The intellects know the intellects think, of course, their nature of intellects necessitates them to think. And this triggers creation. So knowledge, creation, uh, are basically um, combined together. Uh, creation um, is uh, determined in a kind of way by knowledge. What happens in Ibn Arabi's thought? God's knowledge is dependent on the object of his knowledge, which constitutes you and your essential status. Knowledge has no effect on the object of knowledge, while what is known has an effect on knowledge, bestowing on it of itself what it is. So in Ibn Arabi's understanding, God's knowledge is really determined by the object of his knowledge. It is the tayunat, the ayan tabita, these uh, possible things that are still abintra within his, um, within, within his essence, within his uh, absolute unity, that in a way determine what God can know of them. What God's knowledge is determined by the object of his knowledge. And this understanding is fundamental if we look at the definition provided by Ibn Arabi's on Qadar and Qadar. Qadar, which is usually translated as this divine decree, this pre-eternal plan according to which God predetermines everything that will occur in the world and in other dimension. God's determination of things, is God is defined as the God's determination of things, which is according to what he knows of them in them, since his knowledge of things is dependent on what that which may be known gives to him from what they are eternally in themselves. 
is basically stating that the I am Tabitha, these eternal archetypes, these forms of possible things, the nature of possible things as being immutable, are dictating what God can know of them. It is the object of God's knowledge that determines God's knowledge. We have the definition of Kadar, loudly translated as destiny. And um, Ibn Arabis translates and interprets this as the precise timing of the manifestation and annihilation of things as they are essentially for the determiner in actualizing his determination complies with the essence of the object of his determination in accordance with the requirements of its essential nature. Here, it is quite clear that Ibn Arabi's thought is very much distant from, for instance, a Ghazalian or an Asharat view of predestination, this idea that God at each moment in time, this occasionalistic way of looking at predetermination as God being able constantly through taqwin to instantiate and annihilate at his please, at his will, whatever enters existence or whatever is, is, is predetermined to leave existence. Um, Ibn Arabi's stance is very much more akin to the Avicenna understanding of determinism as a natural determinism. Um, Avicenna speaks of the nature of the essences of the possible beings as secondary causes. It is the nature of things that determines what those things will become. Um, <clears throat> so, basically, God knows himself through his names, through his ayan tabida, through his attributes. The attributes are nothing else than the loci manifestations, the places of disclosure for the uh, divine names. The divine names are contrived, are still embedded in the absolute unity of God, in his wahdiya, uh, in his status of ultimate unity. Um, so God knows himself to his names only at the very moment they are identified via their respective attributes. And in a way, God's self-knowledge is nothing else than answering the call for the names need to be manifested. The names are still indifferentiated within the divine essence and they can become known uh, to God in a more detailed way, only when they enter existence, only when they are transferred within existence and they found their manifestations as loci teofanici, as loci manifestationis of, the, uh, of God in the attributes, in so-called sifat, in the attributes, the definitions of the attributes has been provided to you at the very beginning of this, uh, of this presentation. Um, so what does this mean? It means that uh, um, God's self-knowledge opens the door for the inner divine potentiality to be disclosed. And this makes knowledge, gnosis, the cause of, let's call it, ontological realization. <clears throat> now, I am proposing here another passage which I found quite interesting. And this is how Ibn Arabi in the Futuhat, in the third volume of the Futuhat, um, uh, criticizes, in a way, uh, the 
both the peripatetic philosophers but also the neoplatonic philosophers who uh, identified God either as the direct cause of creation or as the cause of the first entified being, i.e. the first intellect of the neoplatonic emanative schema. And that's what uh, Ibn Arabi states. They, the philosophers, have interpreted the expression the real through which creation occurs into meanings. Some of them make this real identical with the cause of creation. Those are the peripatetic philosopher, the follower of Aristotle. But the real creation cannot be assigned a cause. This is what is correct in itself, so much so that in him nothing can be rationally conceived of that would require the causation of this creation of his, um, uh, of his that becomes manifest. On the contrary, his creation of the creatures is a gratuitous favor towards the creatures and the, the beginning of bounty, and this independent of the worlds. Others, I, others philosophers, make this real to which creation occurs an existent entity through which God created what is apart from him. These are those who say that nothing proceeds from the one, save the one, i.e. the Neoplatonist philosophers, the, the followers of Neoplatonism, and that the procession of this one is the procession of an effect from a cause, a cause that demands that procession. As for this, it is what it is it. As for me, I say, when God's command comes, the commander is the command, and this is the tahuid of him who possesses the command, so associate not, for association is a proven wrongdoing, and so on. So here, Ibn Arabi is basically stating there is no way that we can address God as directly a cause of creation or as directly the cause, as the Musabab al-Azbab, as Ibn Sina would have defined him, the causator of causes. Why? Because if we put God in connection with this creation, we establish a form of necessary dependence of God with this creation. This is was why an Arabi was actually um, also critical of the philosopher's understanding of the eternity of the world. For a philosopher like Ibn Sina, God considered as the cause of creation meant necessarily that the effect of this creation, i.e. the world, was coeternal with God. So philosophers like Ibn Sina were uh, supporting the idea of the eternity of the world. And uh, if we look at the theory of the, of the immutable prototypes of these immutable entities, we might be prone to understand that Ibn Arabis in a certain way espouse this philosopher's understanding of the world as being coeternal with God. God's knowledge is eternal and uh, um, of course the object of his knowledge must be eternal as well. But this is not the case. And this is his reply to this problematic of the eternality of the world. How should the cosmos have eternity? It has no entrance into the self-necessity of wujud. The self-necessity of wujud here is, of course, the self-necessity of God as wujud, as the real, as the pure existence. Were eternity affirmed for the cosmos, non-existence would be impossible for it. But non-existence is possible, or rather, it actually happens for all the cosmos. However, most of the servants are uncertain of a new creation. This is, of course, a reference to the Quran, but this is also a reference to um, Al-Ashari's understanding of the, of the doctrine of Taqwim. Al-Ashari affirmed in the renewal, sorry, uh, uh, Al-Ashari affirmed it, the renewal of the entities in the accidents, but the philosophers <coughs> imagined that he was the companion of a disease, so that they considered him ignorant, <coughs> excuse me, of the black of the Africans and the yellow of gold. 
and thought that his position had led him astray. Now, um, William Chittick has analyzed how in Ibn Arabi's thought the two terms illa, which usually is understood as a cause and ma'lul, so the effect, are actually also translated as uh, a malady and as the infirm. The root of these words are understood by Ibn Arabi to be referring not as to the cause and the effect, but as uh, a reference to a form of malady and a form of uh, infirmity. So when Ibn Arabi is referring to al-Ashari and the philosophers believed him to be the companion of a disease, he's basically stating uh, that the philosophers failed, sorry, that uh, uh, um, uh, Al-Ashari failed to perceive the nature, the essence of things as being causative and of creation, as in the thought, as in the thought of, uh, of Avicenna. He was not aware of the black of the Africans or the yellow of gold, the nature of these things and how the nature of these things played a causative role. So here's just a restatement of Ibn Arabi's uh, stress that it is impossible to refer to the real as to be a cause. This would make him not, would betray his nature as the independent of the world. Uh, it is not appropriate that the real, that the real's acts be assigned causes, for there is no cause that makes necessary the engendering of a thing save the very wujud of the essence and the fact that the entity of the possible thing is a receptacle for the manifestation of wujud. Here, once again, there is a very Avicennan understanding of receptivity as being a condition for wujud. Even Sina speaks of matter and the receptivity of matter for forms has playing a very important role in the, in the causation of the uh, existential compound, of the material compound. So we know that according to Aristotle, everything that exists is made of matter and form. For Ibn Sina, as long, uh, together with form, even matter played a fundamental role because it, it's receptive of the form that is assigned to him by the, um, uh, to, to, by the uh, agent intellect. And in, uh, it, there is a form of resemblance when Ibn Arabi is basically stating that the possible thing is a receptacle for the manifestation of wujud. It is the, possible, the possibility, the fact that everything that is receptive of wujud is still a possible thing in itself that makes it is a makes it as a recipient for existence. So once again, a return to the Munkinat, uh, described also by Ibn Sina. Um, I will just briefly refer to the Ayon Thabit again in order to clarify once again what is uh, Ibn Arabi's understanding of the role in uh, uh, the, the uh, the, the issue of predestination or actually determination, determinism. The relation between the Ayan Thabita and the notion of predestination is the focus on the constant changes by which the mutable entities manifest themselves to and through the real. Um, basically, according to Ibn Arabi, uh, God has described himself to be every day upon some tasks. This is, of course, a Quranic, uh, a Quranic source. But what are these tasks for Ibn Arabi? They are not direct actions of God. It's not God acting directly on, on existence. 
but it's basically God deciding, choosing to bestow his manifestation, his forms of manifestation upon uh, the possible of existence, this I and Tabitha. But of course, on the other end, the I and Tabitha, so this uh, um, possible existence that remain, that stay immutable forever, it is their nature, it is the fact that they are munkinat, this common denominator of the iron tabita as being possible things that make them, that in a certain way, um, uh, determine what God can know of them. Do you remember I mentioned that uh, in Ibn Arabi's thought, God's knowledge is basically reliant, is dependent on what is the object of knowledge. So it is truly the nature of the iron tabita, it is the nature of these possible things, immutable things, that determine what God can know of them and uh, Mm, what God can choose. It is, is it God who chooses to transform a possible thing, a monkey art, and transform it into a, uh, a, an, an, an existing thing, a maujudat? Or it is the nature of the ayan tabita, the receptacle of existence that informs God of its needs and God compliantly and in harmony to, its na to their nature uh, invests them with wujud. I will conclude my presentation just looking at the concept of servanthood, ubudiya, and servitude, ubuda. Um, and I will just briefly read through this. To servitude, the servant follows the command without any opposition. When he, God, says to him, be, he comes into existence without hesitation, for there is nothing there but immutable entity receptive by its very essence to being engendered. Then, when the locus of manifestation is actualized, God says to it, do this and do that. If it is obeys, it is because it is a locus of manifestation, but if he obeys and does not delay, that it is in respect of his immutable entity. So basically, what Ibn Arabi once again is trying to stress, with reference to the uh, stations of uh, servanthood and servitude, is uh, while in the state of servanthood, the, the, the servant, the abd, is still in a relationship with himself um, uh, because what he perceives as, as a relation to God is simply a relation to the name Lord that characterizes his essence. And whereas on the other hand, in the state of servitude, the, the abd is uh, in the absence of any form of relation, either with God or with, him, or with himself. What really counts for Ibn Arabi is actually the, the role played by the uh, immutable entities. And when God, in his kun, in his existentiating commands, um, um, imposes existence on the immutable entity, this is nothing than the answer to a call by the, um, uh, by the immutable entity, the possible being's request to be put into existence. Thank you.